everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Let's start things out with a question. Do you believe leaders are born or are they made? If your instinctive answer to this question is both, you've chosen correctly. In truth, there are some people who come into the world with uncommon traits and talents, and when they grow into adulthood, we come to call them natural born leaders. But these people are a rarity in life, and even they prove to grow tremendously from additional leadership skills, training, and development. The reason I ask you this question is because just a few decades ago, the common belief in business was that people either had the talent to lead other people or they didn't. Consequently, the curriculums at the top MBA programs around the world were heavily weighted on statistics, financial analysis, accounting, and the like. And business school graduates were effectively taught how to manage numbers, but not people. And it wasn't until former students at one top business school went to prison for insider trading that companies challenged universities to start teaching students about ethics and trust, moral responsibility, and leadership. It's only in recent years, surprisingly, that MBA programs have taken leadership development training as seriously as the financial aspects that once entirely defined them. So knowing this history is important to understanding how leadership training is evolving, not to mention what skills and practices will be most emphasized in business in the post-COVID era. Now, just to make a point many of you have seen me make on Twitter recently, there is no normal that any of us is gonna to return to when this crisis is over. People all over the world have had plenty of time to evaluate how satisfied they are in both their work lives and personal lives. And I'm absolutely certain this collective introspection will force many changes in how we seek to motivate, inspire, attract, and retain human beings going forward. None of us wants to return to the old ways of leading and managing. And this brings us to the discussion of what the future of leadership development will look like and what it needs to look like and I have the perfect guest to give us the answers. Stuart Friedman has been a professor at the Wharton Business School since 1984. With the exception of a few years when he took a leave of absence to run leadership training at the Ford Motor Company, Stu has not only witnessed the profound changes in how leadership has been taught at Wharton, he's actually the founder of Wharton's leadership development program in addition to Wharton's work-life integration project. As you're about to hear, Stu believes that the future of leadership development needs to emphasize leading from the point of view of the total person. No longer do we all just want to be great leaders in our companies. We also want to feel no less successful in every aspect of our life. Stu, coincidentally, is the author of Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life, as well as the co-author of the brand new book, Parents Who Lead. He's coming to us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and a warm welcome to you, Stu Friedman. Mark, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to this discussion, and thank you for coming. I honestly think we're going to cover a whole lot of ground here, maybe a little bit more unusual relative to some of the other discussions I've had. But you've been at Wharton since 1984, which I think gives you really unusual optics into the evolution of leadership training over the last 35 years. And when you started as a professor there, I want to start by asking you to sort of assess what you saw. So how effective were Wharton and perhaps other MBA programs at teaching future leaders how to successfully lead and manage human beings? Where were we 35 years ago when you first started? Well, I've seen a lot of changes over these last 35 years, including a lot more gray hair when I look in the mirror. Mm. 
But aside from that, there's been really significant change in the whole world of leadership training and how we think about leadership generally. When I first began here, I came from the University of Michigan where I got my PhD and where I'd studied talent development systems, leadership development in large companies throughout the Fortune 500. And I did a large-scale study that looked at what companies do to invest in future leadership talent and how they go about selecting their top leaders and connected that to their performance and their reputation and drew some interesting conclusions from that that I then used as the basis for practice and consulting with companies on how to help them cultivate the next generation of leaders. And at that time, the whole notion of being able to learn leadership was questioned in a way that it's not today. I mean, I still, still get the question, are leaders born or made? The answer to which, of course, is yes. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And that a lot of the development of leadership, of course, is, is through reflective experience, you know, through going consciously through experiences uh, surrounded by support and feedback about your actions and their consequences that helps you to learn. But, you know, 35 years ago, the notion that you could learn leadership was much more sort of in doubt, and there was a lot more resistance to the idea of leadership training, uh, leadership education, whereas now it's de rigueur. You have to have it. Nobody questions it really. You know, the leading companies all understand that there's a lot of ways of going about doing it, but that leadership as a mindset, as a skill set, it can be learned. And indeed, it must be learned. So what are you teaching now? In other words, what are we leaning into? So I'm surprised to hear that 35 years ago that there was leadership development didn't even seem necessary, is what you're saying. And so I guess one question I have is like, did we just think that people were made leaders and that the people that we put into leadership roles had already demonstrated a capacity to do this so we didn't really need to invest in them any further? Or what was the thinking? Yeah, there was, I mean, that's a simplified way of putting it, a succinct way of putting it. It's a complex set of questions, but in essence, that's right, Mark. There was much less of a well-understood commitment in organizations of all kinds, except for the military, that you needed to invest in the cultivation of leadership talent. In the military, that's always been taken seriously. And indeed, we've learned a lot of lessons from military organizations in terms of you know the importance of and, and how you invest in the development of leadership talent. Right. It used to be a matter simply of selection. You know, if you got the right people, which of course matters a ton, then they'd figure it out. But no, there's a lot more that you can do. And so what we've been doing and what at Wharton and in our company, which is an organization that works with individuals and organizations worldwide in helping to cultivate leadership talent, is to help companies to do that. And it's indeed possible and it is life changing when it's done well and when you've got people engaged in the work of learning what it means to lead who really care about trying to become better leaders and live richer lives. And my particular focus has been on being a leader from the perspective of all aspects of your life, not just your business or your work life. So in 1991, I started both the Wharton Leadership Program, I was the founding director of that program, where we began 
new initiatives specifically designed to help students, undergrads and MBAs, learn leadership by doing it while in school. And in that same year, I also founded the Wharton Work-Life Integration Project, which was dedicated to developing new practical knowledge for how to integrate the different parts of life in a way that works for all of them. And that work on both streams led in the late 90s to my being invited by the CEO of Ford Motor Company to join that company to head up leadership development for the company worldwide, which I did for a few years. I took a leave of absence from my faculty position and my wife and I, who were both PhDs from the University of Michigan, she's in clinical psychology, we by that time had three kids, and we moved back to Ann Arbor where we had been poor graduate students 15 years prior, and now we came back and I'm a fat cat senior executive at a big company, and we've got you know, the cars from the company and all the rest. Anyway, I'm digressing here, but I, I, I got to Ford and was able there to have the support and resources of that amazing company to develop a model of leadership growth and development that was about the whole person. And we called it total leadership. And that's where that began. Okay. So I want to come back to the Ford experience. I want to nail down some of the things that you've said here. And so we go back now to saying that 35 years ago, there wasn't really much interest in educating managers on how they could enhance their leadership skills. And that manifested in the curriculum at schools like Wharton and yours. And then there seems to have been some sort of an epiphany, right? At least an opening to maybe we should do more of this. Mm -hmm. So what was the progression? So I'm thinking just in listening to what you're saying that this total person orientation mm -hmm. is the most recent iteration of education and leadership related to not just really to all schools. I mean, I think we're looking at the whole person and we're understanding that that has huge influence over us as leaders, but we haven't been there for very long. And so what was the progression? What did we think we needed to teach people first? And then what have we learned subsequently that allowed you to do the work that you're doing today and have that be seen as credible? Well, what we initially established, and I'll just tell you about our experience at Wharton and in the corporate learning institutes that I was faculty advisor for and designer and participated in a number of those. As, as in the mid-80s, corporate was coming alive to the idea that we could invest in leadership growth and development and we could use centers for learning leadership as opportunities to help create stronger cultures, better understood value systems, and for people to help to develop each other through doing real work together and learning from that real work in a kind of laboratory environment. And probably the most well-known exemplar of that was General Electric's Crotonville Institute, that's a town in New York, Crotonville, mm -hmm. where they had their corporate learning institute, and it became you know world famous because of the impact that Leadership Learning Center had on the company and its growth and its impact. So that became a, a model for many organizations and really opened up the field to. And they weren't the only ones, but they were you know the most well known example. 
opened up the whole corporate landscape to, oh, this is a good place for senior leaders to come together, to interact with people who are on the way up, to anoint you know, people who are high potentials or to motivate them to become a part of the higher echelons going forward. It was a way of giving recognition to people who showed promise and to have them learn about the company by being together with people from all over the company. It had many, many benefits including as a kind of pulpit for you know the top leaders to be, again, conveying here's what's important and interacting with people on a more personal level. What we did at the Wharton School in the early 90s was to create a model of learning about leadership in a team environment by creating learning teams. And we were among the first to do this. We had all students in the first year of our MBA program assigned to five or six person teams. And they worked together on projects throughout the entire year in courses throughout the year. So I negotiated with all the faculty, the course heads in marketing and statistics and strategy and operations and finance to, do you have a group project? Okay, great. Use this team. Okay, sure. We'll try that. It was a time of experimentation. We were trying a new way of revamp the MBA program, motivated to get to another part of your question by the marketplace, which was telling us, hey, your MBA students are out of touch with leadership and ethics and moral responsibility. You got to teach them about that. And so that was our charge to help students learn about what it meant to lead and to have a moral compass. So we put them in these learning teams and they had to do projects together throughout the year. And in our course, which was new, we built a kind of superstructure around all of that experience together in these teams to teach them about the dynamics of teams, to learn about what it meant to lead, you know, the basics of having a compelling direction, an enabling structure, or you know, ways of building trust, how you communicate in ways that get to the truth, and to be continually experimenting with better ways of getting things done and learning from your experience. We had them writing journals about their experience, providing feedback to each other throughout, and that's what we began to do. Now, that has evolved a lot over the last few decades, but that was the initial idea, is to create real experiences surrounded by feedback, real data on the impact you were having on other people and opportunities for you to hear that so that you could see the impact that you were having and to change, to learn through change. So that's fascinating. But the marketplace comes to you and says, hey, you're going to have to teach these MBA students some ethics, (laughs) you know, a moral compass, you said. So I'm thinking by the time they're 25 years old and coming to you, they should have already had that imbued in them through their upbringing. But the marketplace is looking and saying people that are coming out of MBA programs are lacking something from a trust and integrity and character standpoint. Yep. Was it just because the curriculum was so focused on manipulating an income statement and a balance sheet that people lost sight of the human side of this? Or what was the cause? We had some of our alumni going to jail for insider training. Oh. <laughs> so, so that didn't okay. help. <laughs> and that was, to be frank, that was an important aspect of what motivated our boards and external agents saying, hey, there's a problem here. 
The source of the problem is probably more deeply rooted than what we do in our MBA program. Mm -hmm. Surely, you know, maybe it's just capitalism run a little too far without constraint in the 80s and maybe now again. So it's hard to say. I'm just kind of speculating here. But I can tell you that it was mostly external pressures that motivated the school to say, all right, we've got to try something new. And we had some forward-thinking faculty and students and administrators who were willing to just put the old model aside and say, okay, what can we do differently that's going to help to address that and other issues that were bubbling in in the NBA world at that time. That's healthy, though, right? You got some healthy pushback. Obviously, you don't want to see any of your alumni going to jail. But it says, hey, we've got an issue to solve here. And and then you guys are all smart people. And so you went and tackled it. Well, we tried. It was very, very difficult. And there was a lot of resistance. It's hard to learn leadership from your experience, particularly when you're doing that on a really big scale. We have over 800 students. So we did that. And we were ultimately quite successful with that. And our model... And there were other schools experimenting in you know different ways, but on similar kinds of issues. And and so now it's standard. You know, leadership programs are standard in all the major business schools, and it's a it's a point of emphasis and a point of pride for many. And they compete on who can do it better. But back then, it was counter-normative. You know, it was not standard by any means. And we had a lot of students coming in saying, "You can't teach this stuff." And, you know, meaning don't waste my time or. Yeah, yeah, exactly. okay. mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. this is soft stuff. It's bullshit. Nobody really can learn this stuff. And, you know, it, either you got it or you don't. You know, this where we started this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So that belief was very much current in the land. And we had to break through that. Interestingly, or coincidentally, I think it was probably six years ago, maybe I write articles for Fast Company magazine. And I had a discussion with one of your colleagues, G. Richard Shell, when his book had come out. And he had told me about how he had been involved with sort of the recreation, the redesign, if you will, of the leadership curriculum. So I'm sure he worked very closely with you. And he said, you know, when we assess this, we probably were devoting no more than 5% of our attention in the education of these MBA students, people who are going to go on to be senior leaders in organizations all over the world, to how do you actually influence other human beings? And I found that just remarkable, but also remarkable was that you identified it and set out to correct it. I'm wondering if you, I know this is a tricky question, but is there a percentage that you could, where are you on the fulcrum now in terms of the MBA program and devoting attention to really developing fully competent leaders, true leaders? You know, I, I don't know if I could give you a good number in terms of the percentage, but it's a lot more than 5%, that's for sure. Okay. And that I can say with confidence. And now our our leadership program, which I'm no longer you know, directly involved in, I, I'm going to be 68 in a couple of months, and I have retired from full-time MBA and undergraduate teaching. I only now teach the executive MBA program. Mm-hmm. And I teach two electives in that program. One is about leading teams and the other is about total leadership, leading from the point of view of the whole person. And, you know, the leadership program, though, has really flourished over these last few decades and involved in many, many different initiatives on campus. And and that's a point of pride for us and, again, is something that is now expected 
in all the leading business schools and in all the leading companies. So things have changed a lot. The particular focus that I brought to this whole domain was, was to focus on the whole person. So at the same time that I was launching the leadership program with a remarkable array of colleagues and amazing students and other faculty and, and external stakeholders who were really, there were a whole bunch of people who were really excited about, this is good, we need to be doing this, and how do we do it together? And we did that, and at the same time, the world was awakening, as I was personally, to the challenge of it's not just about business, it's about life. And so how do we find creative ways to help people using evidence, using you know practical knowledge to better integrate the different parts of their lives in a way that works for all of them? I saw that as a powerful issue in my own life when I became a parent for the first time 32 years ago, and I saw it as a social movement that was going to have huge repercussions throughout society and, and certainly in the business world as as the roles of men and women were changing and as you know women were assuming greater power and authority and the dual career model of family structures was becoming you know more common and as breadwinner and caregiver roles were starting to be renegotiated all of that along with the demand for a stronger social policy to support working families through family and medical leave and support for child care and education. All that was on the horizon as new issues that were going to be coming more and more central to the kinds of questions that we as a society and we in the business world face. And sure enough, that's happened. And so the particular solutions that we went after were, well, how do we help people to learn this stuff? What can we teach them? What kind of learning environments can we create uh, that are going to help people to uh, discover who they are, not just as leaders, but as leaders in their lives, not just as leaders at work? And how could we help them to do that in a way that was going to improve the performance of their companies? of their business life. And so we did research on this. We went into the field. We looked to find people who were successful at integrating the different parts of their lives. And we came up with a set of principles that I initially wrote about in an early Harvard Business Review article, 1998, called Work and Life, the End of the Zero-Sum Game. And just a year after that, I was hired by Ford to revamp the leadership development process for the company worldwide. And my interview with the CEO, I said, look, Jack, what I'm going to do here is focus on the whole person, not just the business person. And he said, great, do it. And so we did. And that was uh, thrilling and life-altering for me personally. And to have the opportunity to work with remarkable people in that company to create a new model of leadership development where we had people focus on the principles that we've been learning from our research, being real, being whole, being innovative. That's what the great ones do, the people who are successful as leaders in their whole lives. They know it's important to them, being real, their values and their vision. They have a sense of the whole person and they know who matters most in the different parts of their lives and, and how to talk to them in ways that they get at the truth of what they need from each other. And they see the whole as a system that they can have an impact on. And so what happens in this part of your life at home affects who you are at work and in the community and for yourself personally, your mental health, physical health, spiritual growth. And the third principle, so being real, being whole, being innovative, 
continually experimenting with new ways of getting things done and growing as a leader all the time. We created a model for how people could do that based on the research that we've been doing. And it was like a festival of great energy and remarkable innovation where we created opportunities for people to improve performance at work, at home, in the community, and for themselves personally by finding creative ways to integrate them. It sounds really idyllic. And obviously, you were a visionary 30 years ago in seeing what these needs are going to be. But there's a lot of evidence that depression and anxiety and, you know, this never-ending work day where people are tethered to their devices and never really know whether they should or shouldn't send an email or respond to an email late at night or jump on late calls. We've lost all, we sort of like blurred all these boundaries. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering how pervasive this understanding is, because what you're describing is brilliant. question is, are other organizations other than Ford using it? And are Ford, now that you're gone, have they continue to use it? Well, that's 20 years ago. Things have changed a lot. Okay, okay. But I still occasionally hear from people who were in our programs or who worked for the people who were in our programs about the impact that their experience in our programs had on them and their lives generally. You know, a few years after I left Ford, after beginning to teach a version of the Total Leadership course here at Wharton and then especially in our executive MBA program, it really took off here. And I wrote a Harvard Business Press book about this program, richly illustrated with instructions for how to do all the exercises in the program from you know the people who'd been in it. And along with the results of our research on its impact, and that was a bestseller. It's in a bunch of different languages. And we now deliver this content to individuals and organizations worldwide because of the very issues that you just identified, Mark. And that, that is that there's a real hunger for models of leadership that are about how you grow as a leader, how you improve your capacity for impact and performance at work while also improving the quality of your life and the relationships that matter most to you. And that's a big shift. And there's a real desperate need for these models and people want it because especially young people who, men and women coming up who are now, as I'm sure you know, much more inclined to be demanding. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, where are we? Because the, I guess the leadership report card indicates that, I mean, if you've got I'm trying to think of the name of the book, to be honest with you, Johan Hari's book, where he talks about this like rather significant increase in depression, anxiety in our society. And he says, we want to treat this with medicine. We want to treat it chemically. We think it's an imbalance and it's not that the numbers don't bear it out. People just didn't suddenly get sicker. The environments that they're working in got sicker. And so when I hear you talk about the, I've read your book, and so I'm really familiar with what you're describing. Okay. This is the critical need. I'm just wondering if you think most business leaders have truly embraced it. Mm. Are companies really truly embracing it or sort of giving it lip service? Mm -hmm. It's a good question, Mark. You know, not enough. <laughs> I think it's certainly true that so many work environments are truly toxic. My friend from Stanford University, Jeff Pfeffer, has written wonderfully about this in a, in a book from a couple of years ago called Dying for a Paycheck, where he lays out all the evidence for 
how we are literally killing ourselves at work through you know both psychological and other pressures that people are facing i think we are in the still early phases of the digital era learning how to harness the power of the new tools that we have available without them destroying our our lives so you know the question that you raise about how we manage boundaries is a primary focus in the work that my students and clients do. They figure out, well, what does it mean for me to have boundaries between my work and the other parts of my life? What does it mean for me to try to find ways of blending them that would make sense? And where do I need to provide you know, protected time where I'm not distracted or interfered with either in my thoughts or in my you know, physical actions, one part of my life to the other. And people become more conscious and deliberate about making smart choices about when, where, and how to create those boundaries and how to negotiate them, which is, of course, crucial. How to talk about the need for protected time and space with not just your boss and colleagues and clients and suppliers, but with your kids and your spouse and their teachers and, you know, your in-laws and whoever else that matters and your friends, your church groups, to be really thinking of yourself as a leader in all these different parts of your life and to try to find new ways to, to make them successful while advancing your own values and vision. And you're absolutely right, Mark, you know, most people don't think about this stuff often enough and they don't have the tools. I'm doing what I can to try to get them out there, but I believe we are failing. I can tell you that there are more and more schools prior to college that are awakening to these ideas and are developing methods, curricula, for helping people to learn about caring for themselves, caring for others, and and that's a path for leadership in terms of impact, and that it's gotta be about the collective interest and not just about self-interest that you pursue if you wanna have a successful life. So it's coming, but it's a slog. You know, cultural change takes a long time. Well, so let me ask you this question, because we're in the midst of one really unusual time in all of our lives, certainly, with not just the pandemic, but when people go back to work and what our lives are going to be like and whether it's going to reappear. There's tremendous ambiguity, Mm -hmm. but there's also something that I find interesting that's happening right now, which is that because millions of people are working at home and they're not commuting, they're not getting on trains, they're not sitting in traffic, they're having quiet time. And I believe that all of that quiet time, you know, when you shut your mind off and all that frenetic energy, that what bubbles to the surface is all the things that you write about. How happy am I in my life? Mm. Am I living my purpose? How are my relationships? Do I have enough time for myself? Do I enjoy the work I'm doing? Do I enjoy working for this company? Do I respect the person I'm working for? Mm. All of those kinds of things are popping into people's minds and So I think when we go back to work, when the real world, you know, whatever that is, resurfaces, you're going to have millions of people coming back with different expectations. So I'm wondering if you think that might be the catalyst for organizations to finally take what you're talking about very seriously. You're articulating very well a number of the 
conversations that I've been having with people in various parts of the society and the economy about what might happen next as a result of the pandemic and the forced staying out of the office and being really alone and with your family and what that means and how people are coping, how they're creating all kinds of new ways of connecting with other people virtually and getting work done in their home environments. So one of the potential silver linings of the terribly disruptive and painful pandemic times that we're in is that it's a natural experiment. We are being forced by the force of nature to obliterate the physical boundary between work and home life. Mm-hmm. So that's been for, for many, many, not everyone, of course. There are so many people for whom that's not true. People who have to get out of their homes to continue to generate income for their families. But for, for many people, we're working at home has created a new sense of possibilities for, wait a minute, I don't have to commute and I can still be productive. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in the interstitial spaces during the day, I can find ways to, to be connected with, you know, I can exercise more, I can have more time with my kids. Of course, many, many people are just extremely frustrated and overwhelmed by the demands of you know what it means to be at home and trying to get work done. And that's why the model that we write about in, in the new book, which is devoted to helping families lead, it's parents who lead, how we do this as parents. We didn't write it for pandemic times, but it turns out it's super <laughs> relevant now because the very things that we've been talking about here, clarifying your values, what do we stand for as a family? What's a better tomorrow look like? You know, that leadership vision. How can we articulate that in a way that's exciting to you and to me, to us, our kids, and that enables them to make smart decisions and to understand why we're doing what we're doing on a day-to-day basis as well as long-term? How do we listen to each other to build trust and gain support and so we can be helpful to each other? The basics of leadership are needed now in families much more than they had been in the past. And I think you're going to see, to get back around to your initial question here, a greater openness and willingness in corporate America, especially, to different models of work arrangements because we've been forced to experiment with them and people are going to discover that flexible arrangements and remote work can be really good for everybody. So the resistance that has been felt to those kinds of alternative work arrangements motivated mostly by a lack of trust. If I don't see you, then I don't know if you're doing work. Now that we are forced to, I can't see you, so let's focus on the results that matter. And you know, you figure out how to get it done, which is a key to creating flexibility and empowerment. That's happening now in so many ways that would never have happened before. And I think as a result of that, we're going to see new possibilities for how people are getting things done and where and when they get them done and a much greater openness to alternative models. I mean, that is clearly happening and we're not going back. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. We're collectively not going back. I think the longer this thing goes on and people are working from home that they're acclimating, they're figuring it out. They're learning how to discipline their time and get their work done and still do the interstitial things you said, which was brilliant. And at the same time, 
there are managers out there that still want that control yep. and aren't comfortable having people. So do you think that there are going to be companies that, you know, remember when Marissa Mayer called everybody back from Yahoo and said, all this does is imply that you're not working very hard, so we need you here mm -hmm. so we can see that. Do you think we're all going to have the same epiphany that, you know, the cows are out of the barn and we're not going back the way we used to? Or do you think there's going to be some fighting on this? There's bound to be a lot of conflict about it because there are going to be many, many instances where it fails for all kinds of reasons, some beyond the control of the, you know, the actors in a particular scenario, like whole industries going under, mm. where sectors of the economy are just being completely disrupted in some ways destroyed. Look at the cruise industry, travel, restaurants. I mean, there's just going to be a lot of reinvention. I mean, nobody knows what it's going to look like. But one thing we know for sure is that it's not going to be the same. I'm confident in that. And, you know, maybe there'll be more job insecurity leading to greater willingness to forsake you know, the finer things in life, the more significant things in life. But mm. what I'm hearing, maybe it's just because I'm biased and I want to hear it, <laughs> but I hear a lot of, you know, just exactly what you were giving voice to so, so nicely earlier, and that is a greater understanding of, wait a minute, why am I doing this? You know, the questions of purpose, which have really risen to the fore in the last decade or so among young people as they enter the workforce. Like, well, what's your company about? What? What do you do, actually? What's the impact that you're having on the environment? Those questions, I think, are going to become yet more pronounced. But at the same time, because of unemployment becoming... Yeah, in the short term, it's going to be... It's going to be huge. You're going to have to do what you need to do to meet your basic yeah. needs. And that will, I think, trick some organizations into, eh, this is just a temporary issue. But I don't see this going away. No, I, I don't either. But it's really hard to know. There are, there are larger forces at play here. I think one of the things that we're going to see, my youngest child, my only daughter, is a school teacher in Boston. She's 26. And I hear a lot of parents saying things along the lines of, wow, teachers have a really hard job and I can't believe what they do and they should really be paid a lot more money. So uh, I am a strong believer in education. All three of my kids are in some form of education or another. And one of the things that I hope comes out of this, Mark, is that we tip the scales a little closer to equality between you know people, say, in finance and people in education. I think that would be good for everybody. I mean, I totally agree with you. And I think people listening in would be here, here. You know, the problem is you get into the voting booth and you're looking at a bond initiative <laughs> that's going to raise your taxes. And yeah, right. So it's a complicated issue. But I think you're going to see, I mean, we're already seeing a decline in the number of people going into education and the decline in the number of people going into nursing. And we're looking at both of those <laughs> occupations as sainthood destiny, you know. Yeah. And I think that's going to convert into dollars. It has to. And if not, well, there's little hope for us then. Because, you, you know, you judge a society, do you not, on the basis of how well you care for the young and the infirmed. We got to change that. Well, we don't always do such a no, great we do, job. Of that. We do a really shitty job of it. Okay, good. I'm glad you said that. So I can <laughs> I can agree with you. Yeah, I think that's the issue. You know, we're talking about leadership. We're talking about values and purpose and things that are truly meaningful to you know to you and to me and to everybody listening to this. And we're all sort of inspired by it. And then we 
look out our window and we go, are we living these values? Are we making these decisions? And so you can point to government and saying they're tripping and falling over every low hurdle, but it's true in business. You know, we're not really seeing, I mean, I think in many cases, the first instinct that organizations had when this pandemic hit was we got to let people go. And we didn't say, let's be creative and see if there's an alternative and maybe people would be willing to take a pay cut so that everybody could stay. I mean, it was so quick to make the move Mm -hmm. that millions of people were out of work and we'll look back on this and we'll have a better assessment as to whether or not they were forced into it or not. But I think we don't always say, no, wait a minute, we're dealing with human beings here, we're dealing with the long term, we're dealing with our purpose and values, and we need to execute across that. I think we just go, we got to let people go and make that quick decision. Do you agree? I don't disagree, Mark. And yes, you're making me depressed here thinking about (laughs) Not the intention at all. I guess what I'm really trying to accomplish is every one of these conversations are different. And and this one has got me very focused on the gaps between what we say we're supposed to do and what we intellectually understand we should do. Yes, I agree. And what I do with my work and in my books and my courses and my talks around the world is to give people some practical tools that enable them to take action in their world because you got to scale down the scope of the issue to what you can do something about. And the good news, I think, in this story is that every one of us can do something to be more conscious of what our values are and to be more deliberate about how we convey those through our words and deeds to our children and to the other people who look up to us and to use this moment of intense exogenous change, you know, forces outside of us creating a need for a new way of thinking to use this as an opportunity to wake up to, again, back to where you began our conversation, to what's really the point here? What's my purpose? And that's, that's the grounding for learning how to lead and for creating harmony among the different parts of your life. It starts and ends with, why are you here? What is it that your life is about? What do you stand for? What matters most to you? And from that, you begin to question, as any intelligent person is doing, to question, well, am I living according to those ideals? What can I do to get closer to that? What kind of help do I need? Of course, everybody is falling short. Everybody. I mean, it's easy to look outside of ourselves, to look at our institutions and to say, fail, fail, fail. But of course, the best place to begin is, how am I failing? And to accept that that's always going to be the way it is. Compassion starts inside you. And to be asking these questions, well, what for? What can I do better? What kind of help do I need? That enables you to lead and it enables you to inspire other people and also to feel a greater sense of control in what is an overwhelmingly disruptive and anxiety producing time. You just brilliantly transitioned into where I hope we would go. In fact, I was going to take you there by saying, you know, okay. if, if you had a. I won't even call out an age. I'll just say if you're talking to our audience and visualizing men and women of all ages, of all levels of experience in leadership roles, you really just went into here's how to use this time. 
you know, because there is time mm-hmm. and there's space to do this work. So what are some of the exercises that, you know, specifically, if you said to everybody listening in, if you could do mm-hmm. these couple of things over the next few months until, you know, frankly, even when we go back to work, which is being debated by the time this comes out, we may have some sense of when that's going to be, but it's not going to be a normal world. And these kinds of questions that you just posed and the kinds of thinking that you're laying down is is really something that's essential. It's what you're teaching with your books. It's what you've been teaching your students. But assuming people haven't done it before, this know thyself work, mm-hmm. what's your prescription? Well, there are some things that anyone can do right now to get a better sense of themselves as a leader. And I would start with first asserting that you are a leader if you want to be. And that means taking seriously the idea that you can grow as a leader. What's a leader? A leader is a person who mobilizes other people towards a valued goal. It's being able to imagine a better tomorrow, looking at the reality of today, and bringing others along with you as you try to step towards that better tomorrow, even if you never get there. So anybody can do that. This isn't about being in an executive role or having people reporting to you in a hierarchy. It's about you taking seriously the idea that you do have a set of values, you do have a vision of a better tomorrow. You may not think about it, about those things, but it's in there. And so you can look and discover them and articulate them. And that's the place to start. So how do you do that? It's not that complicated. And again, anyone can do it. So if you were to do just one thing, I think the most powerful way to start would be to imagine it's 15 years from right now, which is really far out there. You can't even think about what you're going to do next week. But now imagine 15 years from now. So let your imagination run free. And see if you can describe an ideal day 15 years from right now. You wake up, what do you do? In the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, what are you doing? With whom? And most importantly, why are you doing what you're doing? What's your purpose? What's the impact that you're having? The legacy that you're creating? So just describe that day. And that's your leadership vision. It doesn't have to necessarily come true, but it ought to be something that's realistic and that is compelling and that is a picture that you can see. So a leadership vision is a compelling image of an achievable future. And what we have found, and I'm telling you this from 30 plus years of research and experience and working with leaders of all kinds all over the world, they understand the ones who are good, they have some picture of a better tomorrow that is rooted in the realities of now. And simply articulating that compelling image of an achievable future, it gives you a greater sense of purpose, it can inspire you, you know, especially if it is about not just you, but about how you're using your particular gifts or inclinations, whatever those might be, your passions, your skills, what is uniquely you, to benefit other people in some way or other. So if it's just about you and having a lot of money and cars and houses and kids in the best schools, Mm -hmm. nobody's really going to care about that. But if it's about anything that you're doing, and even if it's just, you know, helping to cultivate a better life for the next generation, 
if it's about you're using what's uniquely you to make the world better for other people, and that's what you can envision 15 years from now, that's a great place to start because that, again, not only helps you to feel a little bit better about today, it gives you ideas. It'll start to give you ideas about, well, gee, what could I be doing right now, like today or tomorrow, that would help me take a small step in that direction in a way that other people would benefit from and would perhaps want to help me with? You start to ask yourself those questions, and you're on the path for growing as a leader and for integrating the different parts of your life. And being happier. You're going to feel better, and your, your life's going to be better. Hey, Stu, I'd like to take a quick break from this conversation and ask you a few more personal questions, meaning I'd like to ask you a little bit about your interests and influences and life philosophy. We call this the heartbeat round. It's actually based on the response that I get from our audience, one of the most popular parts of the podcast. All of these questions are going to be really brief, and I want you to answer each one instinctively and quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. So are you ready to go? Okay, let's go. Okay. The defining moment of your life so far? When I became a father for the first time. One book of any genre you wish everyone in the world would read? Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. Two or three values people around you would say that you embody? Passion for learning, justice, and a real commitment to helping other people change. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. We will learn to appreciate human relationships, particularly with our children and our most vulnerable in ways that we haven't before. Trait you most admire in other people? Insight about who they really are. One person that we're all familiar with who's had a surprising impact on your thinking and worldview? Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> One of the best, if not the best leader alive today. The best leader alive today, Greta Thunberg. Oh, okay. Very good. That's out of the box. Very good. Lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. The more you seek to understand the needs of other people, the much better life is. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. They fail to do just what I said, which is they don't think enough about how other people see them. Your synonym for the word heart. Compassion. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Playing the bass guitar. And your favorite quote or mantra? My favorite quote is from James Baldwin, the great civil rights activist and novelist. He said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. I love it. Wonderful. Very, very good. I want to get back to our great conversation. So thank you for going through that with me, Stu. Okay. I promised to come back to the Ford experience. And so you um, knew this. You probably cultivated a greater understanding of it since then. But you were teaching this there. Did it inspire people to achieve yeah. what they dreamt their lives could be? Was there frustration because it was such a huge gap between their current experience and what they wanted? How did this influence them? What did you learn? Well, we had remarkable success with this program there. You know, that's the beginning. The beginning is to articulate your values and your vision. Then, then we got into the heart of it, which is, all right, who are the most important people in your life at work, at home, in the community? What do they expect of you? What do you expect of them? 
And how do all those different expectations interact? Where are they in conflict? How is what your kids expect of you in conflict with what your boss expects? Where is their compatibility? How is it that they want the same thing from you? And so you start to ask these questions and then you skill up, you learn about the basics of effective dialogue and how to talk to people to enable them to tell you the truth about what they really see when they see you as a leader. Taking what I call the leadership leap, putting yourself inside their heads, their hearts to see yourself through their eyes. And people did that. And all of this is happening in a peer-to-peer coaching environment where you and I are doing it and Joan, she's doing it as well. And you're reading my stuff and her stuff and we're coaching you and reading your stuff and asking you questions to help you clarify what you're thinking, what you're learning. So people undertake these dialogues and then they come up with all kinds of ideas for experimentation, for new ways of getting things done. And that's what they do. They undertake consciously designed actions, small steps that they can take, demonstrably improve performance at work, at home, in the community, and for themselves, what I call the four-way win. And everybody can do this. I have never met anyone, and I've asked literally tens of thousands of people, what can you do that would have a positive impact, either directly or indirectly, like through ripple effects, on all the different parts of your life. And it could be anything as simple as exercising to be less of a jerk at work and to have better health and and to do it in a way that connects me more with my community and perhaps makes me a better father, a better husband, to delegating more effectively, to free up time for things that matter more and to develop other people, to simply you know, disclosing that leadership vision to more people in your life, to inspire them and to learn what their visions are and how you can support and inspire them or to, to bound your time and attention in a way that enables you to focus on the people and things that matter when they matter and to try doing that in the space of just you know a few weeks to just experiment. And when we ask people to do that and then to measure the impact so that everyone came up with a game plan and a scorecard for a set of experiments in terms of improvements at work as well as in the other parts of their lives, we found that people saved the company tens of millions of dollars by the changes that they were making and they were healthier and they spent less time working. How did you calibrate the 10 million? We had accountants counting money. <laughs> this is healthcare savings or Exactly. Yeah, okay. Productivity improvements, yeah. cost avoidance, new revenue, and then intangibles, you know, that were then translated into dollars. So, yeah, it, we didn't just have the participants in our programs count the money. We had the the accounting people in their departments do assessments of the economic gains from these experiments, which is something that's been hard to replicate in other companies because it takes a lot of resources to just do the counting. But we did that there. What we have been able to replicate is the basic finding that when you ask people, one of the things we ask them at the beginning and at the end is, what's most important to you? If you were to take 100 points and divide them up according to these four different domains of your life, work, home, community, and self, where would you put those 100 points in terms of what's important? All right, now take another 100 points and allocate them according to where you spend your most time and attention in a typical week or a typical month. And now assess how satisfied you are on a simple one to 10 scale with each domain. And finally, how well are you meeting the expectations of the key people in each domain? 
on a scale of one to 10. And we did that before and after, four months later, after people did all the things that I just described of articulating their values and vision, who the people are that most matter, talking to those people, and then experimenting with new ways of getting things done. And what we found is that after, and this is now on hundreds and hundreds of people, is that they adjust their attention and focus more on family and community and self as a result of this exploration and innovation, and their performance improves according to the assessments of people around them at work, as well as in the other domains of their lives, and they feel more satisfied across the board. So that's what we observed at Ford, that's what I observe in you know, the work that I do with students and clients, and we're trying to bring it to as many people as possible because it can be done. It's fantastic advice and so timely. And, you know, just to sort of punctuate what you've just said so eloquently is that in the absence of metrics, accountants counting the money, as you said, people can feel not only can people who've done the exercise feel better, but as you just described it, the people that work around them and work for them can feel a difference. And that has a powerful energy. And I think that's really brilliant. And I hope people will take your advice and use this time wisely. And on behalf of my audience, Stu, thank you so very, very much. It's just been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Well, Mark, it's been my pleasure. And I would simply urge those of you listening, if you want to learn more, visit totalleadership.org, where you can find out all about the stuff. There's a lot of free resources there. There's free chapters from all my books. There's videos. There's podcasts that I've been doing for now seven years with fascinating people who address these topics. So I, I hope you'll visit us there at totalleadership.org. And Mark, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. Best to you. Stay safe and well. Thank you. Before we go, I'd like to make a few of my regular requests. Please share our podcast with your friends and colleagues if you enjoy them. And please also write us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. We truly rely on you for both of these. And in light of the COVID pandemic, it seems it may be months before any of us feels comfortable attending conferences or large meetings. And as a professional speaker, this means my life has been profoundly changed for the foreseeable future. So I'd like to make the request that you please consider me as a virtual keynote speaker or as someone to guide a leadership Zoom conference with your team. Last month, I'd been scheduled to speak at a conference in Africa, and when it was suddenly changed due to COVID, I was asked to still speak, but this time virtually. And yes, it was weird for me to not see the faces of my audience or even to get direct feedback until we conducted a Q&A session at the end. But for me and the people attending the virtual conference, it proved to be quite wonderful. And so if I can do something like this for you, I would very much love to do it. I want to thank my sound engineer, editor, and partner in producing this podcast, Eric Oz. A special thanks to Felicia Sinousis. And I, of course, leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm -hmm.